Welcome to episode 36 of the Media Sport Podcast Series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, and it's good to be speaking to you wherever you are and whether you are presently in lockdown because of COVID-19 or enjoying a relative level of freedom. Let's start with a public health message, particularly directed at Australians, get vaccinated everyone. In this episode, we are talking about an underexamined yet widely experienced feature of most if not all people's lives, human-animal interactions and relations. Joining me via Zoom is Melanie Sartore-Baldwin, an Associate Professor in the Department of Kinesiology at East Carolina University in the United States. Melanie's research focuses on social justice and diversity-related issues in sport, including sexual prejudice, weight discrimination and gender. Melanie is the author of over 60 articles, book chapters and refereed conference papers, and you can find her research in titles such as Journal of Sport Management, Quest, Women in Sport and Physical Activity Journal, and Society and Animals. I'm talking with Melanie about her interest in animals and sport and physical activity and how the relationships between humans and animals can be used to promote social change. I referred listeners in particular to her chapter, Sport and Interspecies Equity-Based Sustainability, which appears in the Routledge Handbook of Sport and the Environment. It's a chapter that opens up a fascinating range of issues for investigation and discussion. Human-animal social relationships, animal welfare, the environment, sustainability, and the wants and needs and indeed agency of non-human animals. Melanie, welcome and thanks for joining me for the Media Sport podcast series. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Let's just start with a general question. Why your interest in human-animal relationships? My interest stems from my own passion for animal rights. I try my best to not use any animal product. Um, I don't consume animals. Um, I have several animals of my own, and um, I'm pretty heavily involved in volunteering with several animal causes. And in doing that, I have really come to understand that the basic wants and needs that humans have are the same basic wants and needs that animals have. And I really feel like we need to start acknowledging that if we are going to find a way to collectively save this planet of ours. You said you have a number of animals of your own or a few animals of your own. Is sort of what animal, are we talking a menagerie or a particular species focus? Um, well, there's, there's two species. I have, I have five dogs and three cats. I didn't always have that many animals. They've accumulated um, as I continue to volunteer with our local animal shelter. And um, my late husband and I, um, we fostered several times, but we have failed at it several times as well. So that's why I have so many animals. <laughs> Uh, does, I, I understand we have a habit of collecting stray and strange cats and yes, the, the ones that other people don't want. Um, yeah, I suppose moving through into the sort of work you do, and I, I will come back to that personal dimension of the things you observe in relationship to your interactions with animals, but in your chapter, you discuss the idea of equity-based sustainability. What is this concept and why is it useful in thinking about the rights of ecosystems and animals? Well, sustainability as a whole is very cog or it's very present in everyday life. People talk about sustainability from the standpoint of 
economics, as well as the environment. Um, and when we talk about it in the environment, we tend to focus on what that means for humans. What can humans do for future generations of humans? What can humans do for current generations of humans to ensure that they get the same components of society and life that, that we get? Um, so sustaining that for future generations. What is absent in many of these discussions is sustainability as it relates to our non-human counterparts. So what are we doing from a business standpoint to ensure that animals' habitats are staying intact? What are we doing uh, from a business standpoint, specifically sport organizations, to ensure that natural habitats continue to exist? I, in most of my classes, the first day I'll start out and say, you know, we can do so many amazing things with sport if we just used it in the right way. It has such a profound reach. It's prolific globally. And so integrating things like interspecies equity-based sustainability, where we're focusing on more than just humans in the sport realm, in my mind, could really create something that other industries would want to mimic. So things like, I'll use an example for sport organizations. Um, so uh, endangered species mascots, for example. If a sport team has an animal mascot and that animal mascot is an endangered species, logically that organization would do whatever it could do to ensure that that species stays present on the planet. And that species exists in its natural habitat and it does so in such a way where its basic needs are being met. With an extension of that, obviously, is these sport fans who we know are ravenous for their sports and their teams and the stars that they follow. Um, and those individuals will be, if a sport organization puts forth an effort and those individuals that follow that sport organization, they're going to follow suit and they're going to want to help those animals and they're going to want to help those habitats. We just haven't gotten to a point yet where that's integrated into the policies, practices and standards of organizations in the sport realm. There are a few that work to help, um, but many of them are still focusing on humans. It's very, very focused on humans. And listeners wouldn't have seen Melanie on screen as I'm talking to her, but she was just visited by one of her cats. Uh, <laughs> it was very lovely for the record. Following up on the mascots issue, what's been the response to your work on sports fans? And they you, you know, you've written about in animals and society, you know, sports fans. And I suppose as a part of that, or an extension of that, what's been the response of sports organisations or sports people within the industry to the sorts of arguments you're presenting or the barriers to the acceptance of those arguments? It's not been great. Uh, and for one study in particular, we looked at an endangered species and we looked at what sport fans knew about that species and if they were interested in information on helping that species. They knew very little, but they were interested in learning more. And when we went to the athletic department and asked about including some of this information on their website, they said they didn't want to get political. So in the United States, there are a couple different lists for endangered species. There are endangered essential, endangered non-essential, 
so on and so forth. This particular animal was endangered non-essential, meaning that they didn't want to challenge those individuals who don't feel that that species is one that needs to remain in the United States. So we didn't get anywhere with that. They weren't interested. They didn't want to draw any attention to themselves with regard to adopting some political stance on this. It, it's regarded as a political issue. I don't know that I would regard it as a political issue. I, I mean, there you can look at attitudes toward animals and you can look at political affiliation and political orientation, and you will see differences. But from the standpoint of an organization adopting a political stance as it relates to endangered species, that's not a connection I would have made. But it was one that they made, and maybe they did so because they didn't want to hear from me anymore. I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, it's interesting because I, I just did a, another study very recently where I looked at into animals as mascots and attitudes toward animals as mascots. Um, and I did so in such a way that I also looked at Native American mascots. And sport fans very much have positive attitudes towards animals, which would suggest that they're willing to help. They have negative attitudes toward Native American mascots. They don't feel as though those representations are fair. Why not replace Native American mascots with endangered species and get sport fans involved? We have this entire segment of the population that will spend so much discretionary income on tickets and apparel and food and travel, and it, we can just use it in, in better ways. And so I'm hoping to present that data, hopefully next year, and then write it up. But it's very slow going. Um, we are still very much a society that values humans, human life over all other life. That is changing, I think, slowly as our climate starts to really tell us that some negative things are happening here, but it's definitely slow going. I suppose it leads to the question, you use uh, something called animal standpoint theory. Could you just talk to us about what that is and why it's important? So animal standpoint theory is a is one way in which you can approach understanding or better understanding the plight of non-human animals on the planet as a whole or with regard to any industry or any segment of society you're looking at. So animal standpoint theory tells us that animals are integrated into pretty much every aspect of our lives. And we would do well, much like other standpoint theories, to stop, step back, look at what it is that these individual animal, non-human animals need, what it is they want, and how we can ensure that their wants and needs are being met just as our wants and needs. It's essentially telling us to not ignore that, to not ignore the fact that when you get into your car and you're sitting on your leather seats, that's animals being in your life. When you are driving to work and you stop and you see a stray animal or you see feral cats, those are animals involved in your life. And when you stop for that burger at lunch, there it is again. So really acknowledging the fact that there are, many people would probably not say that there are rights associated with animals. I would say that there are rights associated with animals. And, and that's how animal standpoint theory approaches um, its view on non-human animals. Can, 
given that you research and teach on this, this is obviously something you thought very deeply about. I mean, just to, I suppose in connecting it with your own personal experience, I mean, given that you have many animals and what have you learned? I mean, what is what have you learned from your interactions with animals? What have animals taught you? Oh, wow. I have learned so much. On top of the research and sport organizations, I also do a lot with shelter animals and physical activity. I run a program where students get academic credit for a service learning class um, where they go out and they walk the shelter animals and they do so twice a week. They get, you know, over 4,000 steps, two miles. It's fantastic and it's benefiting all involved. And what I have really learned along the way is that there is a consciousness in these animals that is so pure and so innocent that it is very easily manipulated by the human. And so for us to blame animals for things, you know, when we blame an elephant for going into a village because it's looking for food, why are we blaming the elephant for our (laughs) mistake or our error in expanding a village such that takes over the natural habitat, or we've done something to the natural habitat where they no longer can get their own food. So a lot of where I come from, from my own experiences, is this level of shared responsibility. We have a responsibility to take care and to ensure that those beings that cannot fend for themselves because of our actions maintain a life where they don't suffer. At the very basic level, no suffering involved. I mean, you can take it back to Maslow. You can take it back to whatever you want to look at with regard to needs and and the human condition. And you can apply that to non-human animals. So really this idea of pure consciousness, there's no motives. There's undying devotion and love. But at the same time, there's also normal animal behavior that we tend to think is motivated in such a way where they're trying to get back at us or something. So I think that pure aspect of animal consciousness is what I've really, really taken away from all my experiences. And yeah, and it sort of opens out really interesting sort of areas for analysis and reading your work, you, you know, you, you sort of point to these hidden dimensions that they're there all the time. You talked about the car seat earlier. It's, I mean, but many of us, including myself, of course, on a day-to-day basis, don't stop and think a great deal about it. Now, when it comes to sport and physical activity or recreation, you talk a lot about dogs and horses in particular in, in, your, in your work. I suppose what, in thinking about just talking through the different ways that dogs and horses appear in sport, physical activity and recreation, what do they reveal about human-centric systems and worldviews? Oh, well, unfortunately, they, they reveal that humans are inherently human-centric. And when you think about it from a sport standpoint, we, we put sport on this dichotomy or this, actually, it's a continuum of social class. So if you were to look at dog sports, dog fighting, dog racing, things like that, it exists at one place on this spectrum. And then there's horse racing on the other end of the spectrum. And it's associated with high class. It's associated with tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars for these horses. But most of the motives for this from a human perspective is money and power and prestige. So 
it always amazes me at a horse race when the owner is celebrated. Like, what did the owner do? <laughs> the owner put money into that animal, but certainly didn't run that race and certainly didn't do all of the hard work and possibly also forced to take performance enhancing substances. So it's motivated by our, and I mean, our and non-human or a human standpoint, our desires to make sure we're, we're looking out for ourselves. We're not looking out for the animals and we're doing that in pretty much every industry and every facet of society. And it's something I would dare say you're unaware of it, but probably the biggest horse race every year in Australia is the Melbourne Cup. And there's a public holiday in the state that I live in, which is a curious thing. In recent years, there's been a number of horses that have broken legs and had to be shot at the end of races. And yeah. of course, it's been an interesting let's say, unintended consequence of multi-camera, high-definition coverage that yeah. in the past we weren't as intimately exposed to this reality. But these days with cameras everywhere and people with phones and there's, not, there's nothing happening on the course that day that can't be seen. And this has, of course, changed a lot of people's attitudes yeah. to, towards this event. And I suppose, you know, are there other areas of sport or physical activity that you're seeing changes in mindset around? Are you seeing any areas of progress, given your em emphasis on social change in your work? I think where I'm seeing the most progress is in some of the sustainability practices in sport organizations and probably most notably in the food choices. Food choices at sport arenas have become vastly different than they were probably like five years ago, definitely 10, 20, 30 years ago. We now have options that recognize that individuals don't want to consume bodies of other living beings. And you see that more and more, and it's kind of it's making its way across the United States and making its way across the globe. And then other sustainability practices, you know, putting your recycling bin out, things like that, all of those things, you know, we've seen and we know that they exist, but integrating those practices into the, the organization itself is not always followed <laughs> as a result um, of those small practices. So I would say sport organizations are, they are taking some steps forward in that they are acknowledging that the planet needs us and they're doing so with their food choices. They're doing so with really their venue operations, probably more than anything. But beyond that, you know, we haven't seen this vast, huge uh, swath of change that we might have expected to see um, by 2021. <laughs> The other area you identify beyond food is equipment, sporting equipment. And mm -hmm. I kept thinking yeah. about the term, I mean, I know they're not made of this anymore, but pigskin in American right. football, grabbing, grabbing, you know, like literally a football. I mean, what are the other dimensions that people perhaps don't think a great deal about in sort of the, the manufacturing or the creation or the production of the equipment that makes sport possible? Baseball mitts and saddles. I'm trying to think of some other ones. Um, once upon a time, tennis rackets were strung up with animal hair. There's lots of examples historically, and we've seen that many organizations that do produce those materials are using synthetic materials, but there are still people that 
really feel as though the original is what's best. And so you will see those mitts and you'll see the actual animal hide. Um, you'll see it with the, with the saddles and you'll see it with that equipment. And it's kind of just taken as tradition and part of the game. It's the way it's always been done, which is just classic institutionalization. It's the way it's always been done. <laughs> and I was, the other one I was thinking about, I've never been able, I haven't thought enough about it, fishing. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like it, I've never been able to quite work out whether, you know, it's a recreation, a pastime, a leisure pursuit, I suppose, a video game when it comes to big bass fishing like um but yeah like a, a fish you know and i suppose fishing appears throughout a lot of this as well in, in different ways it does and for a very long time people wanted to believe that fish don't feel pain and so fishing even catching catch and release which if you're going to do it, please catch and release, but acknowledge the fact that that hook is in this living being's mouth. And of course it hurts. <laughs> it, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying that they have the level of nerve endings as, as we do, but to tell ourselves that animals don't experience things that are very obviously happening is, I think it's problematic. Um, and so things like fishing, which, you know, and I will backtrack on some of this when I talk about fishing and hunting. If you need those components, if you need fish, if you need deer, if you need those things to feed your family, to make sure that your basic needs are being met, then that's much more acceptable because that is truly how it's always been. Now, if you're killing animals and then doing nothing with the meat and hanging their, their heads on your walls. Well, that's pure ego. That's you wanting some sort of recognition because you killed this, this living being that didn't have a weapon in return to make it a true sport. So in, it, it, with regard to fishing and hunting, we have some blurred lines there. Some of that has to do, fishing has to do with because we can't see what's, what's in the ocean, because we can't see what's in the water, it's very easy for us to take from it and not really give it much thought. Mm. And I suppose in, you know, getting people to think more about this topic, you know, is there a book or a reading or something that you recommend all listeners should pick up and, you know, and, and be handing to their students as well as, of course, reading themselves? There's, um, there are a few different books um, and several are in the animal rights area of things. Reagan, who recently passed away, has a couple books on animal rights. There's some readings in the sport realm that are very new. And I, I wish I could say that I have collaborators in this, but I don't. <laughs> so I have some things out there that, that might be worth reading. But if you are seeking information about animals in sport and, you know, something comes across your path, that you have some interest in learning more about, Google can point you in that direction. While there are the basics, there are the fundamentals, I, I do think it's, it's important to focus on those to some extent. The, the most recent information about the plight of these animals is also very important. And you're not, you know, you're one of the few people, you know, I'm sure there's others out there and anyone listening who is working in this area would encourage you to contact and reach Email out. Email me. <laughs> Please email Melanie. Um, 
why don't you think there's more people? You know, what are the barriers? Is it just, it's, it strikes me, I, I was thinking about my own engagement or lack of engagement with this area. At one level, it just seems so universal. It's there all the time, which means in some ways I don't see it. You know, what, right. what are the barriers to, and despite the fact I have a house full of cats, um, <laughs> you know, like, what are the, you know, what, what, why don't you think more work is happening? Because I think sport and physical activity and recreation are really wonderful ways of getting at this topic and, the, and those sort of human, non-human relationships. I think there's several reasons. And the first one is obviously just very human-centered cultural norms cultural norms are very hard to break. Um, I do think we see shifts over time and we're seeing shifts in this regard, but it's going to take some time. I also think that to some extent, it has to do with money. There's not a lot of money. If you look at organizations that are setting out to help animals, they're all nonprofits and nonprofits, you, you know, they, they can struggle. Um, you know, unless they have some solid government funding or they have some solid private funding, it, it might be difficult. And so sport organizations haven't necessarily lined up with, with the uh, mission of those organizations. So, so money's a big one there. I also think some of it just has to do with very basic in-group, out-group dynamic. You know, we are humans. They are not. So we're not necessarily concerned with what, and that doesn't mean we have negative attitudes toward animals. It just means that we are very much part of this structured environment where they have been established as something that is not us. And to a large extent, it's hierarchical. They're less than us, um, which can tie back into, you know, religious beliefs um, and also something called anthroparchy where lots of prejudices are intertwined. So prejudice toward animals can be linked to gender and racial prejudice and all of these ways in which humans try to dominate others. It, it's, it, it's just, it falls in line with what we know about prejudice and discrimination across the board. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. So can you just repeat that? I, I, remember, I was reading in your chapter. How do we say that again? It's anthroparchy. <laughs> and it, it connects to speciesism? in terms of the way it does um it does it, it connects to a lot of isms and there are a lot of isms involved so sexism racism classism um and speciesism would fall in there um it's just that it's not really recognized as a component it's not one of the isms that we openly talk about because they can't talk for themselves you know when we we hear about sexism, we hear about racism, we hear about all these other isms because those individuals that are affected by it are telling us and they're telling us that it's not acceptable and they're asking for change. Animals are asking for change as well, but they're not doing so in such a way that we can readily hear what they're saying. But if you look at the numbers uh, with regard to endangered species, if you look at the dogs that are living their lives on chains, if you look at other ways in which communication occurs, you will understand that, yes, speciesism exists and they need our help. Yeah, really, I mean, I find that fascinating because it really complicates, you know, if you, politically, who has voice, but also the ways in which we need to listen, as I say, uh, you know, non-human listening. Yeah. Listening yeah. to non-humans and how that is made possible or the conditions make that more likely. And I suppose that leads me to an obvious question is, 
what's next in terms of your research? What are the sorts of things you're wanting to do in this area? Well, I'm really wanting to, um, I, I want to go back into the mascot literature and, and really look at ways in which organizational change can occur. I would like to align with orga larger organizations that are approaching sport from an ecological standpoint. So the Green Sport Alliance, for example, at one point they had mentioned doing something with mascots, but um, they, they backtracked on that. And I'm not sure if it had to do with funding or if it had to do with leadership, but I, I think as the plight of animals exist from a larger scale, so now when we see that our planet is telling us things are wrong and, and we are paying more attention to that, probably more than more now so than ever, I think we'll start to see that animals are communicating that same thing. And so I would like to continue to look at their plight and what sport fans can do for those animals, as well as what it is that they think is being communicated from them as well as the planet. I think, and, and I'm, I'm very much <laughs> anthropomorphizing everything here, but I do think that we can listen. We can listen to the planet. We can listen to the animals. And, and I would like to find a way to do that in such a way where we establish clear rights, clear rights that we have to abide by to ensure that we all exist at a level in which none of us are suffering and we are all existing happily. I think that's an absolutely lovely note to finish on. A clarion <laughs> call, if you will. So look, I just want to say thanks, Melanie. Uh, it's fascinating work. And you know, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I could talk about this for a very long time. <laughs> I'd encourage listeners to continue chatting with Melanie and just reaching out to her. Thank you.